What, what am I supposed to say? I've never listened to a podcast. You're listening to Big Wheel Coaching Podcast. You're, you're, you're listening to Big Wheel Coaching Podcast. Big podcast. Brian McCulloch here with Big Wheel Coaching. Hey, you're listening to Big Wheel Coaching Podcast. <laughs> Hello and welcome to another edition of the Big Wheel Coaching Podcast. I am your host. I am Brian McCulloch, the assistant to the Big Wheel herself, the boss lady, my lovely wife, Joy Joy, business partner and wife, pro athlete and uh, mother of Seamus. So Joy is on the line today. Yeah, mother of Seamus. Sounds, sounds, like, sounds like I'm on the hook for a lot of things too. <laughs> <laughs> You're about to be responsible for all things that that our child destroys and or uh, <laughs> otherwise you know, leaves his mark on. So that's on yeah. you. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Yeah. The most recent uh, common saying is "not in the mouth, not in the mouth." <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What was he trying to put in his mouth today? I can't remember, but it was like, oh. was it an Expo marker, like a dry erase marker that was trying to go in the mouth? I think that did go. That's normal. That's normal. Yeah. Any, anyways, off topic here because we're delving back into the good to go on recovery practices, which probably Seamus could help us with some recovery as well. Um, but yeah, the we we left off here. We did the first three chapters uh, a little bit ago because we got really busy here at Big Wheel. So maybe we can do a a quick. 30 second synopsis of some of the cool things that um that we've done here with big wheel coaching in the last month oh yeah we've had it's been busy time so sorry everyone that it's just been a little bit of uh extra time between our podcast episodes and certainly between this episode and uh chapters one through three and now this part two episode which we'll do three um to cover this whole book but uh we just wrapped up camp big wheel our first training camp joy and i'm so excited that you brought this up because i wanted to really get into this podcast here tonight and uh just share everyone with the awesome stuff that's in this book but yeah i can't skip over just last weekend we had our first training camp camp big wheel was four days out in palm springs we had 16 athletes that came and joined us we had a really killer house we brought everyone in we brought um, hydration experts nutrition experts strength training experts, recovery experts coming to talk to all the campers. We did some four incredible training rides, had incredible weather. Turns out that it ended up uh, raining in Southern California everywhere but where we were at. So we had uh, not just great riding, but we had great weather and uh, we had great luck too. So it was uh, it was really a pretty incredible experience. I know some of the people listening to this were there and and uh, I hope that they'll they'll, you can reach out to the people that were there and hear firsthand what a great experience it was because we certainly had a great time riding with everybody and, and sharing our passion for coaching and helping everyone get better and hopefully springboarding into a season of great performances. Yeah, no, it was a great camp. So it was, it was a little bit time consuming on our side. So now we're like, oh, let's get back to the podcast before too much time has elapsed and before we're jumping uh, probably headfirst into our next big project. Yeah, and we had uh, so we covered the on the podcast last time, or excuse me, the last uh, episode on Good to Go Part One. We did the first three chapters. So if you if you missed that, uh, you can either of course pick up the book. We highly recommend that, or you can just go back and listen to the podcast. It's episode thirty eight. Uh, so just check that out. That's the first three chapters, and that was just so science be like Mike and the perfect fuel. So we're kicking off today, and we're going to do chapters four, five, and six. So that's the Cold War flushing the blood and calming the senses. And uh, I know we were joking about it, Joy, when we started thinking about kind of the title of this one, the Cold War. But there's a really, Christy Ashwan and the author just starts out right away with really challenging what uh, some some culture and some specifically some long-held recovery culture about uh, the rice theory, right? Like rest, ice, compression, and elevation. She, she starts, she goes right after it and, and, uh, says says that it's not for uh it's maybe not it's all it's cracked up to be right yeah and it's it's interesting i think a lot of it is myth busting and and ideology that we just learned in grade school again you know and stuff that we learned in junior high middle school sports and athletics 
And that was back in the 80s and the 90s. And it was just just the way it was. And I think, you know, a lot of areas of science and in medicine have progressed beyond that point. But you see this stagnation around a lot of the adages that we take for granted with um, with athletics. And so it's really cool to see these different vantage points and see like, hey, maybe there's a better way or maybe what we're doing isn't necessarily the best option. Um, you know, just because, you know, when I got my Red Cross certification, it says rice, you know, and this is like, uh, it's like the holy grail to remember rice. That's absolutely. And so when she talks about it, she opens the chapter with kind of training camps. And it's kind of prophetic that we were just came from a training camp. But um, she's talking specifically about a basketball training camp with LeBron James. And, and I'm going to read straight from the book, but it's talking about leaving these athletes, you know, kind of pushing themselves to complete another uh, utter exhaustion. And so it says, Blocks of intense, multiple daily training sessions are intended to force athletes into a state of supercompensation, where the body adapts to stress by fortifying its resources to become faster, fitter, and stronger. Okay, the road to supercompensation is paved in pain, and icing is a popular, if counterintuitive, way of coping with the hurt. So that was a real great way to to kind of get her understanding of what where we, at least where we as athletes start with with this notion of icing and, and ultimately ice baths and um, <clears throat> these kind of things so this super compensation is what we're seeking as athletes we're getting we're trying to get the body to adapt so we're going to overload the body with training stress and then it's going to super compensate so that we can get stronger and so the idea was that if we can then now uh, through icing right in fact, I'm just going to re read it straight from the book because I don't want to mess it up. But it says, intended as a way to speed the body's healing by shunting blood and inflammatory cells away from injured tissue. Why is it injured? Because we worked it really hard, right? Rice became a standard treatment for sprain strains as well as muscles that were, quote, sore from exercise. So... What she goes on to talk about is the inflammatory response. Newer research is emerging, very new research actually, that the inflammatory response is actually a very, very positive thing because that's how the body is directing resources to damaged tissues, be it muscles, be it anything, connective tissues, anything that we're talking about from a hard workout. The inflammatory response is actually a very positive thing, whereas Old school thinking is that inflammatory response needed to be uh, mitigated and uh, and eliminated if possible, right? Like we wanted to outsmart our bodies, and now we're finding new again new research is showing that it's actually much better for us to to do that to embrace that uh, inflammatory response. I thought that was pretty pretty uh, pretty good stuff. What do you think, Joy? Well. Brian, most of our athletes don't have the time or the bandwidth to embrace that because by by us bringing up the even suggestion of allowing that to heal naturally, it's going to come up with a very strong rebuttal. And a lot of that comes back to this ideology that's been been built in and then everyone wanting to, you know, I have to do X amount of miles per week or X amount of climbing and you have all of these basically arbitrary goals you know it's one thing like you said if we're in the midst of you know i think back this isn't ice but like when was it tyler hamilton who literally like taped his collarbone together and kept racing the tour de france right and then he went and got surgery and so it's like and that's probably a long time ago so, but um but yeah, the, we but, see but, all of these hey, things hold back up there pal he ground his teeth down to nubs in the process. So well, we got to exactly. make sure that we keep that. Like there, <laughs> well, there no, was some serious uh, side well, effects there. That was, there, yeah. There's collateral damage for all of this, you know? So I think that it's a band-aiding effect for you to get through something or, you know, in the, you know, when I, I played collegiate basketball and we'd go in and, you know, there are several of the, the athletes that would consistently be icing ankles and, you know, taping your ankles because we would just go, go, go like three hour practice, three hour practices every day. And then, tournament weekends. And so it's, it became, I think, a survival mechanism to get us through. And now saying, hey, let's allow that inflammation to, to do its job and to heal. That means we need to suggest rest. 
and a respite mm-hmm. to an athlete. And that's the hardest acceptance. You know, I'll, I'll have athletes that's like, hey, today's a rest day because you've done all of these myriad of things. And they say, well, I took the dogs on a three and a half mile, really fast hike, walk, jog. Oh, boy. It so, happens all too <laughs> so, often, doesn't it? It yeah, happens and all it, too yeah, often. And it's, you know, and, and I think, you know, the as where the icing has, you know, as coaches, just to be very, um, you know, I, I think it's like, hey, there's one scenario where I, I, I had to ice and did it. But when it's more like habitual, like after, um, you know, and I did see this as well. Uh, you know, that right now we're racing, um, the U.S. is racing the world championships on the track. And, uh, you know, I saw Instagram stories of many of the track racers that are going now. They literally just set a world record today on the team pursuit for the women um, utilizing the ice facts at the Olympic Training Center. They were reading, I sort of sketched it out, but what the, um, there's like a quote on the wall that said what the value of doing the ice bath was. Um, and, you know, these these young ladies are like, we have to be in here. We are going to be in here for four minutes and we've been in here for 32 seconds and we're dying. You know, and on Ash Wanden, the author of the book, talks about the amount of suffering that even if for four minutes, you know, like every single piece of your body and, and what as the athlete are assumption is that if it hurts you assume it must be working and that this can influence your assessment of how much it helped and that's directly from her book so she says like if i'm going in and i'm i'm paying like we have to pay so like we're paying an offering to the gods right if we're like i've got to go and 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 suffer in the ice bath today um it it's it's a, it's a, you know, maybe it's a good mental strategy for, Hey, now I'm running this marathon or I'm doing this, uh, century or this very hard competitive event. And I can, I can hinge back on those great times of suffering in the ice bath and that can help. And I'll go straight to the book to, to back up what you're saying. And it says, quote, all this agony into, uh, feeds into a culture of sport that idolizes grit and assumes that pain equates to gain. I want to read that again. Idolizes grit and assumes that pain equates to gain. It continues. It says the rationale behind recovery baths and cold tubs goes something like this. The cold stimulates your sympathetic nervous fiber, nervous system, which react by signaling blood vessels in the area to constrict and send blood back to your core to protect your vital organs. This rush of blood away from the extremities reduces blood flow to the areas you're icing and slows the metabolic processes in these regions, including the inflammation response, and thus reduces any swelling that might otherwise happen. So then she continues on and uh, she talks about the gentleman who actually popularized the term rice and it goes on to quote, he now believes this gentleman, his last name is Merkin. He now believes that instead of promoting healing and recovering, icing might actually impair it. So it's really interesting that that not only is are we talking about that that inhibiting the body's inflammation response could be inhibiting our ability to recover, but that now we have to challenge this notion of pain and grit being necessary. It's it's like almost permeated. Yeah, the training is tough. Like you guys that listen to this, you know, training for bike race, bike racing and, and all sorts of cycling events is tough, right? You're going to ride in the heat. You're going to ride in the cold. You're going to be uncomfortable. You're going to suffer on climbs. Like it's just part of it. But going fast is awesome. It's worth it, right? But the idea that, that suffering has is not just a part of the training, but it's actually a part of the recovery that you have to suffer during recovery is very interesting. And I've had these conversations with um, our soigneurs over the years uh, on Elevate KHS. And what's really interesting about that is the very best soigneurs I've had, and this is just completely anecdotally, the very best soigneurs I've had, I would initially start with them and I would just get their feeling on massage. And I would say, hey, do you need to go really hard to like make it be an effective massage? Because these mostly gals and there were guys too that have been our swan year, but they could, you know, they can make me cry and I can take a lot of pain. And I would say, Hey, how much do I have to take? And the really, really good ones challenged me. And they said, Brian, if I'm making you crawl off this table, I didn't do my job well. 
And these particular therapists were right in line with what Coach Joy is saying and what Christy F. Schwanden is saying is that you don't have to be suffering in recovery to be able to get more out of your recovery. And I find that that's fascinating because I still to this day have to fight that when I go in to get a massage uh, to say, hey, that's okay. Just just take it easy. I don't want to be you know climbing off the table here because I can't take the pain. But that's initially what I want to do. I want to get the best value for my recovery time. So it's like, go hard, right? And so I, I'm glad you're bringing that up, Joy, because pain isn't necessarily gain when it comes to uh, recovery. Yeah, yeah, too much, too, too much. But so what's kind of the verdict here in the book looking at the Cold War? <laughs> well, I just, I keep skimming through it and I have all these highlighted uh, quotes, but Again, this is from from the guy who came up with icing, and he says, quote, without inflammation, you won't heal. That's how your body regenerates. Like, how much simpler yeah. is that? I mean, we could, we could keep reading, but, I mean, when the guy who comes up with rice says, if you don't have inflammation, you don't heal. And, and I want everyone at home to, to know what we're talking about is recovery from intense exercise. We're not talking about injuries here, but we're just specifically talking about, like, ice baths. You know, and to be fair, in full disclosure, like when we did uh, the year I did the Everest challenge, we stayed in a hotel and I went down and we were staying in the upstairs. We were staying upstairs in this hotel. Or I don't know if you remember this, Joy, but we were you at took this all upstairs the ice. hotel. It was super annoying. I did. I literally, it was 110 degrees outside at this hotel and I emptied the whole thing and I put it all in a tub. I filled the so whole rude. tub with ice. <laughs> Yeah, with ice cubes. I literally filled the whole tubs up with ice cubes, like no water. And I sat in it like for like, geez, it was like an hour. And I remember you were like, we have to go to dinner. Get out of the tub. And I, because again, I thought like, well, four minutes is good. Well, then 20 minutes must be great. Well, then 60 minutes must be fantastic. And uh, obviously it didn't do any good. So that was a bummer. Well, thanks for finding you know, that I out think, now. well, I, I feel as if you, you know, for those of you who don't know, Brian likes to go all in. Um, and so, you know, the suggestion is like, um, you know, 12 minutes max, you know, and if these really long, what they use ice for is to keep bodies. And this is, you know, if I'm transferring organs as an organ donor, your body's going to be on ice. Right. And so if you're in ice too long, like there, there's some, there's some negative health things that can happen, your system will start shutting down. And so, you know, we always really encourage uh, temperance with such activities or, you know, it's like looking at cost, cost benefits and, and, you know, I think cooling vests are great. That's, that's, we're not talking about that specifically, but if I'm, I'm going to go race, you know, in a hundred degrees or a hundred plus or something that's going to be really aggressive in the elements wearing that one of those cooling vests could help kind of keep your core temperature down. Totally different story. Um, if yeah. I'm running after Seamus and I roll my ankle super bad, I'm going to come in here and put ice on my ankle, you know, because I, I, it's a knee jerk reaction <laughs> because I learned it in the second grade, but also I want to help alleviate some of that instantaneous pain. I've caused myself an injury. Right. And, but if I've gone out and I've done, you know, really explosive gym work and maybe a really hard bike, maybe I should rest or go much easier and do something more restorative the next day instead of having to rely on um, the ice to shut down that kind of those systems. Yeah. And the, the the whole idea of cold therapy kind of continues because this is what her book is about is debunking these things. And and she goes into now whole body cryotherapy. And I found this part really fascinating. There's a theme running through all this where she basically goes back to the very beginning of when these uh, these therapies kind of found favor. And then how did that come into the athletic realm and then take hold, et cetera, et cetera. And she talks about back in the 1970s in Japan, there was a gentleman and his name is Toshima Yamakuchi or Yamachu. I uh, probably, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, sir. I mispronounced your name. Anyway, uh, in the 1970s, this gentleman found that using cryotherapy, whole body cryotherapy, it was helping his patients with rheumatoid arthritis. So that's the origination of where cryotherapy started. And then, of course, at some point, a bigger company comes involved 
and they want to sell these things and they want to sell a service to people and they market it to health and wellness minded people, i.e. you people listening to this, uh, you know, me and Joy and everybody listening to this podcast, right? Like, hey, athletes, I've got a deal for you. Come in here and get this cryotherapy. And so what she goes, uh, she goes on to talk about is how cold therapy, specifically cryotherapy, really curried favor in like the NFL and the NBA and even mixed martial arts and things like that, where they were doing these these really extreme cryotherapy uh, rather regularly. And then she goes back and now finds the, um, goes through the process herself. She details that. And then she goes down and, and actually starts going through the research, which I thought was pretty interesting. So I want to read this to you. And it says, one study of whole body cryotherapy found that even with temperatures of negative 180 degrees centigrade, measured at the outlet of the device, the decrease in temperature recorded on the skin were still only between negative four and negative 14 degrees centigrade. The study found that muscles cooled even less about negative 1.1 degrees centigrade and concluded that these differences are smaller than you'd experience by using an ice pack or even a cold tub. So here you go, right? And we know people and, and some of our athletes have done this cryotherapy before and bought packages and memberships and all these things to, to cryotherapy spas. And here you go, you're getting the same uh, benefits as basically putting an ice pack on that you can get out of your freezer, right? Or if you want to be extreme and raid the local hotel's ice box, you can do it in a tub like I did. Yeah. <laughs> that was horrible. Um, you know, in, in the cryo, it's, it's in, I know it's come a long way and I've had several clients that have used it. Um, but I, I feel like they kind of tapered off of it just because they realized, um, you know, it was, it's price, it's a little bit pricey and they weren't feeling some of those instantaneous results, you know, or it, it's, it was a little more nebulous. And so that was, that was not a selling point for them. And this chapter concludes with a really simple quote that I, that says exactly what you just said. It says, quote, more than 20 studies have been published on cryotherapy, but none, not one of them offers convincing answers. So if you're out there listening to this and it works for you, fantastic. But you're probably in the minority. A lot of people are finding that it doesn't, it doesn't do all the things that it says. Yeah. Bummer. That, eh? <laughs> yeah. Bummer. Yeah. Kind of bummer. <laughs> no. You know, I I always felt like I was missing out because I never did cryotherapy. Like I could just never wrap my mind around paying money for that. And I, I really felt like I was missing out. So thank you, Christy Ashwarnam, for making me feel like I, I shouldn't have my, my FOMO is unfounded. Okay, your <laughs> FOMO is unfounded. Perfect. All right, so we move <laughs> to the <laughs> another thing that Brian would never spend his money on anyways. Um, other than the only way you're getting cold was taking ice from the hotel. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, and I, so I chapter did a couple five, ice I didn't like them. I'm just putting it out there. I did. I, I stopped. Yeah, you're a hard I, sell on that. I, you're definitely I had already, a hard sell. I had, on that. I had already suffered enough in the bike race. Why keep it going? Yeah. Yeah. Well, there you go. There you go. So, chapter five is called flushing the blood, and I, I found the the name kind of like nebulous uh, of the chapter. But what it really means for everyone is the, the there's this notion of that waste product gets left in the muscle. If you almost think of your muscles like they're in a plastic bag and that plastic bag gets filled with lactic acid and that acid is very bad for your legs or for the muscles inside of them. And, and so you have to, quote, evacuate that uh, waste product by, quote, flushing it out. You've probably heard that. And everyone's heard that. I know I've used it as a coach. So uh, it was really interesting to dig into this notion of flushing the blood from the working muscles. And, uh, it's, it's kind of interesting what she, what she finds. And I, and I hope that you guys will agree. So, uh, I'm going to start with this, this portion of it. it says the theory behind training and recovery boils down to this. You stress your body and it responds by fortifying its resources to better, better handle stress. Uh, the new focus on recovery recognizes that training is only as good as what follows as the recovery that follows it. Right. So she continues and it says lactic acid uh, is removed very quickly 
during active recovery, it's gone in less than an hour. So that's from this woman named Joyner. And uh, she is a recovery expert who the thinking there was they're trying to figure out this flushing idea and that, well, okay, we do all this really, really hard work. Well, now we want to rest really hard. So let's get all the waste product out of the muscle as quickly as possible. And, and now come to find out basically lactic acid is removed from your body by your body and it's natural. Um, it's just natural processes in less than an hour. So uh, maybe it's maybe our, I don't think that they're, they're saying that, that all the waste product is gone or that all of the pain should be gone. I think what they're saying is our understanding of what's happening at a metabolic level uh, within the muscle is needs to evolve because there's still damage that's done. That's not to say that your tissues are repaired. Then that's not to say that active recovery isn't useful, but uh, maybe our understanding of what's causing the discomfort needs to evolve. Yeah. Well, and, and the discomfort muscle breakdown, you know, if you're, I went, we went to the gym yesterday and I did a bunch of squatting type things. There's no, no amount of flushing that's going to get that lot. It's not lactic acid, but you know, we're again, it, I broke down muscle fibers and they're going to have to rebuild. And, you know, in, in the book, Christy really highlights that warmth can help with that circulation, you know, help you be more supple. So, you know, even though it's like a warm shower, a warm bath, a hot bath, something soaking in that is much more advantageous than the more stark and aggressive ice approach. Um, and looking at, you know, the lactic acid, again, you're like, oh, we got to flush it out. You know, and, and I think when we look back when I've had a sworn year, or I've had massages with um, a race scenario. It's like, OK, you're ready for your flush. And that's like you. It's a it's a synonym for getting a massage like oh we're going to flush out the lactic acid but i think what it does is kind of loosens up the muscles and there's actually a lot of damage you can do when it's done when it's like over the top you know when it's really aggressive you know we've been at times where it's like man i feel like i'm more damaged from the massage than i was um from my activity absolutely so she's she's really trying to focus on promoting circulation and the ways in which we as athletes can go about that. And the first thing she really explores in the chapter is infrared saunas. And the reason why she does infrared saunas rather than uh, regular saunas is that there's some emerging research and, and you may, you at home may have heard of it, but uh, there's a, some emerging research or at least marketing that is saying that infrared saunas are superior to standard dry saunas uh, because they, 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 allow your body to increase circulation better because of the infrared heat rather than the standard dry heat. And what the, I'm going to cut straight to the chase. None of it matters, right? Like if you have the chance, there is a performance benefit from getting in the saunas, but uh, the idea that it, that a infrared one is somehow better than a regular one, not necessarily, uh, not necessarily true. So well, it's, um, I think it's interesting, too, because the infrared ones aren't really hot. So it's a different sensation. You know, if I'm thinking I'm going to go to the sauna, I'm thinking like uh, it could be a little bit stifling, you know, and if it's if it's 100 degrees outside and I go into a sauna, it might actually be nice if it's not piping hot as a traditional one would be. But, you know, if you're looking for that warmth, um, you're not going to really find that in the infrared sauna as much as the regular ones. Yeah, I want to I want to share with you the marketing component of it for people. So this is straight from the book. It says one selling point for recovery, according to one infrared sauna proponent I talked with, is that the infrared heat will somehow help your body remove a bunch of toxic substances that supposedly accumulate as a result of exercise. Infrared saunas, quote, get the blood going quicker so you're able to remove toxins that are built up, said the senior sales director at one company that makes and sells infrared saunas. I pressed her on what she meant about, quote, toxins building up from training. She said, when we produce energy, the ATB production itself produces toxins within the body. I'm going to skip, skip forward a bit, and she just, Christy Ashwanden now. This is the author says, I found no credible evidence that normal energy production creates toxins that require removal. So really simple. Uh, you know, you can go to 
if you, if you go to the source and the source is the sales department for an infrared sauna, don't be surprised when they say that the infrared sauna can cure everything and you should buy two. Right. So just keep that in mind where you, yeah. where you come from. Right. So and she says the book continues. It says as be- at best, these claims are built on tiny studies, some of them in lab animals, not even in humans. None of these are purported benefits are definitive and or confirmed. So really interesting. And she's not saying that saunas are not good for performance because there's certainly um, there is some great research actually about. Uh, saunas and heat training and heat adaptability and even how heat adapt heat training can sim uh, simulate altitude training right because the way the body reacts by increasing um, blood volume is very very similar to what happens when you altitude train so uh, very very cool stuff so heat training is a good thing uh, but maybe heat for recovery uh, is not necessarily uh, all it's cracked up to be, at least not in an infrared sauna. If you can get in a sauna, we highly recommend it. Right. Not yeah. So think good. circulation increase. So if that's, you, you know, so have, have that in the forefront of your mind when you're looking at the, the heat modalities. Yeah. And she continues with this whole flushing concept and she talks about massage and I, I spoiler alert here. I was a little bummed out about this. I was a little bummed out about this one because I do <laughs> do enjoy massages, and uh, I have a little bit of the Kool Aid I've been drinking with that. So um, it says, "quote This is from." Uh, before I get to that, let me talk about this person. It says, uh, "Massage is standard fare at most Olympic training centers." Really, who doesn't enjoy a massage? It feels really good, but despite all the love that athletes feel toward having their muscles rubbed and pressed, quote, there are very very few evidence-based benefits for massage, says Paul Ingraham, a massage therapist, former director of sciencebasedmedicine.org. So this guy is actually a massage therapist, and he's like, hey, there are very few evidence-based benefits for massage. And when I read that, I was like, whoa that stinks because I really like them and I feel like they really work. And I've recommended them regularly to our athletes uh, for an, any number of reasons. And they've actually brought benefit to our athletes. Um, so I just, well, I, I was like, man, I, I we got to dig deeper into this, you know? Well, I think they're, they're looking at um, a small window of the benefits of massage. So they're looking more physiologically, like, is this like legitimately aiding in recovery? You know, or is this, you know, aiding in that feeling of the muscles being broken down? But I think I think massage is something that I would really be an advocate for where the placebo effect is real. You know, we talked about this in our episode for the first couple chapters is that, you know, Brian, you're feeling better when you go. So then and after you go, there's no sense there it's not bad for you. It's not a negative, right? Or it's not something that is a deterrent, you know, and I think when I've gone, um, even just thinking about the value of human touch. So like with our son, who's 20 months old, you can see how quickly that human touch can change his demeanor and can ease his, ease his emotional pain or ease his stressors. Right. And there's many times like he'll, he'll ask me to scratch his back or to rub his back as he's falling asleep, having that that touch and that sensation is very soothing. And so you kind of, as I've experienced that with him, I'm like, I really believe that there's value in having our athletes be in that position to have that sort of touch. Right. And it's not to be weird. It's it's not a sexual touch. It's not a romantic touch, but it's like, Hey, I'm a healing touch, which is a very, either people have no touch at all, but having that sensation, I think it can be really powerful. Oh, I completely agree. And I think you said that so well, Joy, because I was having trouble articulating that uh, the difference between the way uh, the author Ashwanden is, is approaching this as as a scientist versus what my experience and anecdotal experience has been with it through all the years we've been doing this with our athletes. And, and not to mention the years and years and years that cyclists do that, like they wouldn't, they wouldn't have swan years and they wouldn't be the crutch and an incredible incredibly important hub of pro cycling teams if they weren't incredibly valuable and useful and well i think what's interesting is well that's exactly what it directly translates to right in french it means the healer 
And what I think we want to touch on for everyone is I want you to think of massage as a way to for to force force isn't the right way to do it. But the idea is that through stress, like if you're racing your bicycle or if you're doing something stressful and strenuous, your body is going to protect itself by by having tension and what I would like to think of as tautness or tension in the muscle. So the muscle doesn't completely relax. It's still got some muscle tone to it. So you might notice that in your muscles where if you feel your legs after a hard workout, they still feel kind of tight, right? And so the massage can come in there and by manipulating the muscle, you get a neuromuscular connection where the mind actually can release some of that tension. And that's a very, very good thing because that tension does take energy. There's no doubt about it. So in my mind, when I think of massage and the benefit for our athletes, okay, maybe there's no direct uh, studied uh, recovery benefit of it, but certainly releasing that muscle tension, that is not, a. there's no way you can convince me that that's not a bad thing, right? Or that it's not a good thing. It's very, very good that people are always tight in all sorts of portions of their body, whether it's from sitting in a car too long, sitting at a desk too long, being crouched over a phone or staring at screens too long, or being hunched over a bike for four hours trying to bust out a training workout. You know, uh, getting length and creating length in the muscle through massage, I think, can only help athletes perform better. Well, I think a good reference for that is um, when you spoke with Abel Rendon, on we have to see what number of your pod the podcast was when you know Abel does myofascial release and helps you know from so many different aspects so you know but and and kind of seeing that value but you know I'm a you know we used to watch all the time the Cervelo test team uh DVDs uh for those of you who have DVD oh, players um and you you what is Carlos Sastra or he's like literally there on, you know, they're getting massaged and they, you know, a lot of times, you know, the, the swan years are working around road rash and you know, many times on the table, he's in tears and he's not in tears because of, um, because of the pressure of the massage, it's releasing of that emotion and releasing of, then obviously he's racing at the top level in the world, but you know, that, that release of, of tissue can be directly, you know, connected to to emotions and just kind of like hey we gotta many of our sorry this is a roundabout way to say a lot of our impingements with our training and on our bike are rooted in the mental aspect and you may find that through massage which we saw we know we're watching some of these top pros going through their process is purging of those kind of emotions and and um, roadblocks and then they come out the other side like okay now I'm ready for battle yes I had that kind of that time of to help my muscles but it also like man it could be a little bit of emotional time to kind of clear the full system and you can see how everything really is connected oh absolutely and that's what Abel said too right on uh, if if everyone is interested you can go back and listen to the podcast with Abel Rendon uh, he is a uh, double doctor uh, of physical therapy and massage therapy uh, has a uh, clinic where they do myofascial release. And that's the whole mindset behind it is creating length in the muscle tissue so that when you do recruit the muscle, it can contract very, very powerfully. And that over time, when we work out, our muscles constrict and they just generally stay tense. And that we actually want a very loose and supple muscle to create really powerful contractions. And for those of you who are racing criteriums or mountain bike races or gravel events, um, lesser to extent time trials, but still even time trials, like you really need very powerful bursts of, of energy and muscle contraction to be able to produce speed and power on the bicycle. So it's not as if we're just doing triathlon where we're just kind of like steadily lumping along all day. Uh, we, we don't say, bike riding. Don't say lumping along. <laughs> Is that wrong? Was that, did, am I going to make somebody that, mad by saying that? You could use better terminology. <laughs> okay. I'm sorry if I offended anybody with that because triathletes are studs. I didn't mean it like that, <laughs> but I more mean like, you know, cycling is a much more volatile sport. 
Um, and it is, and it requires us to have very, very powerful muscle contraction. That's why everyone's focused on their one minute power, their five minute power, their sub 10 minute powers. So as coaches, we spend way more time working on that with our athletes than we do our 20 minute, 30 minute or 60 minute steady state efforts, right? Cause that's just, it's not, I mean, some people are racing 45 minute crits. So what does a 30 minute, t- you know, time trial matter for that, right? Like what matters is your three minute power, your five minute power, et cetera. So anyway, I got kind of a off topic there from massage, but Hey, it's all good. <laughs> there is some compression stuff uh, on the wrap up this chapter. There's some, some interesting research on compression and basically they're talking about the uh, Normatech devices or air relaxed boots or basically the uh, compression legs that you put on and they fill up with air. And uh, basically the spoiler alert is that there's not much evidence showing that they are beneficial, but the book also continues on and says there's not been a lot of studies that haven't been done by, or that have been performed by independent researchers. All the studies have been funded by uh, the companies that developed the product. So uh, she's not saying that they're not useful. Uh, She does, in fact, say that they feel good and she likes to use them, but uh, she doesn't say that there's any definitive research to say if you did 20 minutes in this particular routine after this, you're going to get X gain uh, from that. So that's just keep in mind that if you don't have recovery boots, you might not be missing the program uh, and don't need to go buy them. But if you have recovery boots, keep using them. I think that's the the general takeaway from that portion of the chapter. Would you agree, Joy? Yeah. Yeah. And I think at our training camp, we actually had three sets of, I call them squeezy legs. We had three squeezy legs at our training camp. And it was at, I mean, our training camp, we had, there was predominantly gentlemen from the ages of 45 to 75 years old. So um, the demographic is a little bit different than maybe we've had at a camp before that we've participated in. And these guys had never used these contraptions and they were almost like the racing in to see who could be first to use them. It was actually, it was very entertaining because they, you know, they were very excited to say, Hey, look, coach, look, coach, I'm taking like 15 minutes for myself. And they really enjoyed it. And what was cool there now they're chatting with people. They're talking about the ride. So by jumping into squeezy legs, they were kind of creating a sense of community and they're like, oh, wow, that felt really good. And kind of going back to that element of touch, we don't have a swan year there. We don't have massage. But having that, I think it released a lot of, you know, tension or they're just like, man, there was stress on the day. Just we're going on a big ride. So I was I was pleased to see them chilling out. We, that was why we put together that recovery lounge in uh, with Camp Big Wheel. We had a lot of fun with that. And we had a, a lot of uh, backmate products there. And in fact, uh, Eric Bostrom, who owns Backmate, came and talked to everybody about using the the Backmate products, the power massagers and foam rollers and this, that, the other. And so that was really cool. But we wanted to create that that recovery lounge so that everyone could hang out and enjoy a little bit of time for themselves in a decompressed state, right? Because you can be out on the bike and it's like you're worried about traffic or you're worried about trail conditions or you're thinking through whatever stressful stuff is your day or trying to follow a workout and your, your GPS computer and get nail your intervals just right or any number of things that you're doing. And so it's really cool to just come in and just chill out a little bit, you know, and just relax yeah. and enjoy and being able to have some fun with the, uh, the other campers or, in, or, or just really get some time to yourself. And those compression legs I think are good for that. So if you have them, Keep using them. If you're not into them, it's okay. Chapter six is about calming the senses. And I really like this one because I, I spent uh, I spent a good bit of time meditating or at least learning to meditate. I, I went to a, uh, um, at the local yoga studio about two years ago, maybe three years ago now, but they were doing uh, like twice weekly uh, uh, meditation classes. And I was going to those regularly. And the gentleman there, whose name was Yohai, really, really helped me understand meditation and, and gave me some things to help calm my monkey mind. Because uh, if you haven't read, there's a book about talking about the monkey mind. So anyway, minds are just racing and always got something going on. But this uh, this notion of calming the senses either way is something that's really, really powerful. And, and she starts this chapter with a quote from the head coach of the U.S. ski team. It says, it's very simple. It says, any fool can go train more. 
right? So any fool can go train more. It takes courage to rest. Any fool can train more. It takes courage to rest. And that's Tron Nystand. He's the head coach of the U.S. ski team. And that's really, really important because if you're listening to this podcast and you listen to this regularly or or you've come to Camp Big Wheel or gone to the CBR series uh, races that we've done or any Big Wheel event that you've been to, like you're a type A, you want to get the most out of your cycling. You're trying to, to get better. And we love that about you. And we also want you to know that as important as it is to train, as important it is to push your limits, it takes real courage to rest. Okay. And uh, I just did a podcast with the folks over at Belgian Waffle Ride. And it's no secret that I love those guys and love that event. But uh, I talked about being overtrained. Uh, for the 2020 edition, or excuse me, the 2019 edition of the race. And so my advice, they asked me my training advice, and I said, don't be afraid to be 5% undertrained because I'd rather people be undertrained than overtrained. And when you start getting these kind of massive events, uh, massive goals like a Dirty Kanza or a Belgian Waffle Ride, or even if you're trying to do a 115-mile Grand Fondo that say uh, in your training six hours a week, that's that's a lot. It's much easier to be overtrained than it is, is to be undertrained, right? Because you have, or I should say, it's much easier to be confident when you're just training, 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 and then all of a sudden you overdo it. And that's a real problem. So I want everyone to know that uh, it does take courage to rest. So this, uh, this chapter is going to delve into that. The chapter starts with, with sensory deprivation or float tanks. And I thought this was really fascinating because I've never done a float tank. Have you, I don't think you've done one, Joy, have you? I, I don't have time for that. You don't have time for that. Okay, so if anyone at home has done uh, float tanks, uh, we would love to hear about it, but. I have a client who's done it multiple times and he said he really enjoyed it for kind of like all the aspects that are highlighted and, and mostly because it's the most clear, without the stimuli of all the other things like if you did the squeezy legs they're loud right and there's changing of pressures they're changing of the sensations but with the float tank there's literally nothing and that was the best way for him to be able to get kind of back to center um and he really enjoyed them and said he would you know for sure he's like i want to get a a membership at one of these at the like studio place that he could go for it that's awesome that's awesome yeah that that feedback absolutely mirrors what uh, the author, Christy Ashwanden, has to say about float tanks in this book because uh, she it's nothing that I've done, but I've been really curious about it because, in fact, one of my athletes did do it one time now that I think about it, and when she did it, she loved it. She said it was, and she did it while she was on vacation, and she was like, that was the one thing that uh, relaxed her much more than anything else on the vacation. And, and mind you, she was on this, I can't remember where she was, but she was in this beautiful place where she was, you know, you would think, oh, relaxation, this is going to be there. And it's actually the float tank, that sensory deprivation float tank that actually helped her the most uh, kind of get recentered, as you put it, Joy. I think that's fantastic. Yeah, the uh, I'd like to try one of these. Maybe, I don't know if they have those things in uh, in our area, though. I think that's that's more of a city city slicker thing we don't really have those things out here the float tank uh no i don't think i think we'd have to drive like 30 plus minutes to get to one probably yeah. having palm yeah. springs oh good point i didn't think of that yeah so uh one thing and since i brought up monkey mind earlier um christy ashwanden went into the when she went to the float tank she was really thinking well this is going to be awful because she tried meditation and she didn't find success with meditation because of her monkey mind, right? She was just like, oh, her mind, she couldn't calm it down. And so what she says is, quote, stillness is not my natural state. And my monkey brain has a habit of hijacking my meditative mind. So she was really worried about how am I going to spend an hour in this tank, right? Which is neutral. It's not warm or cold. It's just body temperature. You float in this thing. It's supposed to be sensory deprivation. So, um, But anyway, she goes on to say just how like the hour went by and she says, I'm not ready to get out yet. And I thought that was really, I could identify with that as an athlete because I think, man, oh, like I can't even, 
it takes so long to to unwind sometimes, you know. And here she is saying like, hey, this actually helped you unwind so much that you didn't want it to end. And uh, where you were initially probably, at least she was uh, reluctant to get in there or think that it's useful. So we go from uh, cryo chambers to uh, <laughs> of not being effective to this actually being something that is very effective. I mean, I, I wouldn't be opposed to trying it. It's, you know, if we ever like, hey, we've got a group on and I don't have to drive an hour to get there. I think it'd be cool to try. But I, I'm in the same kind of boat as Christy. Like, man, even if you told me to sit down and meditate for 10 minutes, I wouldn't do it. And and we find that very, very often with our athletes, you know, like their exercise needs to be outside of the home. Um, or, you know, you always, you always kind of think, well, my meditation needs to be inside. And one thing that I've kind of, um, I prescribe for some of my athletes, you know, when they come back into their house, it's like, okay, now I'm on to my next task. It's like on a recovery ride, really working on mindfulness. Um, and then maybe within your recovery ride, going to a park. And even if you sit on a bench for two minutes and adding that in for, you know, I have a client who really is battling that monkey mind. And I'm so proud of her because she's outwardly battling it, you know, because I think we all are having that fight, but we're not willing. We're too proud to say that it's a problem or that it's something that could be improved. And so she's actively working on it, finding it so challenging to meditate. So I just really suggest like, hey, on your recovery rides, halfway through, go to the park and just sit there for two minutes. And that two may grow into something more palatable, right? Because if we were to just start off, like you look online, like medit guided meditation, 15 minutes, I'm like, yeah, nope, I'm out, <laughs> right? And so we're just saying like, hey, here's a practice that how can I give the client a win today? How can they do this activity and not feel like they failed? Because especially when you're looking at stuff like meditation, there really is no pass fail. It's you tried, you made the attempt, like you're, 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 you're striving to do better. And so that's a win. And so setting up within the training ways to embrace that um, can be pretty successful. You know, when we talk about training a lot and, and we do this a lot in our conversations, Joy, because we just, we we're talking about leg or talking about training and it, it inevitably Come, becomes about people's legs because that's our motor, right? We're on bicycles, legs are our motor. And so we talk about the legs like they are their own entity sometimes, right? Like it's the legs. But we can never forget that you're a human. There's a whole body there that we have to take care of, right? And so riding your bike isn't just about your legs. It's about all the other connective tissues and joints and skeletal um, muscle and bone and brain and organs and everything, right? And that's where this notion of, of meditation or otherwise stilling the mind is so, so powerful and so important because stress is stress, you know? And, and we, we have the privilege of working with a lot of people that are super, super driven, but they're not just driven when they're in training. They're driven within family life. They're driven within uh, their work, right, in their profession. They're driven at all things. And so what that means is they're carrying and balancing a lot of different hats all the time. And so sometimes taking two minutes on a recovery ride, we tend to think, quote, what do the legs need on a recovery ride? Oh, well, I need an hour. I need an hour and a half of, of, of easy pedaling to, quote, flush the legs. We just talked about earlier in the chapter that, that you don't necessarily, there's no magic bullet to it. Well, at, at 60 minutes, this thing happens. And, and at 59, 30, it hasn't happened yet right? An hour recovery ride can include a 15 minute coffee stop. It can include a 15 minute park stop where you just listen to the birds, enjoy the fresh air, um, or enjoy an otherwise embrace just a little bit of stillness, just a little bit of stillness, not for your body, but for your mind. And uh, so going to the book, it says psychological stress doesn't just impair recovery. It may also blunt the body's ability to adapt to training. Results show that people who report low stress levels posted a marked boost in aerobic fitness and maximum power, but these improvements were small or absent in people who reported high stress levels. Okay, and I want to bring that up for everyone. And I enjoy's already laughing because she knows what I'm going to say. Uh, you know, I, I can be a bit of a stress monkey sometimes. 
And uh, when I have had my best races was when I was meditating and doing 20 minutes of yoga every day. I would do every day. I would either start or end my day with 20 minutes of yin yoga and 10 minutes of recovery. So I'd make 30 minutes for myself. And this was, by the way, everybody, uh, before Seamus. The idea was that reducing that stress is as important to your physical adaptations of training as just calming down and being able to be have a clear mind. So when you're thinking through the priorities in your week, remember it takes courage to rest, right? Because it takes courage to say, hey, wait a second, I actually need a little bit of space and I'm going to give myself this 30 minutes. And and we do this real regularly. And, and the folks that are our athletes that are listening, you guys know, um, we always prescribe yin yoga for our athletes on off days or rest days or even on, you know, um, days where they have a little extra time. We, we do that just for that mindfulness so that they can get more from the current training that they've already, the current training load they already have, but also so that they can maximize the next training block that that's coming up so think of it now if you're listening at home and you're thinking about a next big block of maybe it's your weekend training or whatever it turns out to be a little bit of meditation lowering the stress of any kind is going to help you adapt better to your current training load and and then ultimately take on the next training block that's really really uh, important to recognize well, and I think it's great to recognize, you know, we have a lot of um, athletes on on polaring ends of spectrums that we work with. And so, you know, one example is young professional woman who, you know, no kids in the house, partner who is also like striving to be great on the bicycle and eat healthy food, nap post-workouts, stretch and do all the things, right? And they're gonna, they're high achievers. And now other end of the spectrum, you know, uh, you know, 45, 50 year old male, you know, running it, working a business, three kids at home, multiple soccer practice, you know, all these things. And so for us, the, the nuances of coaching become really exciting and it becomes a real great, like a play on our port part as, as kind of like the practitioner of like, Hey, we can help people on both ends of those spectrums, find that balance find those five minutes, those 10 minutes, because it's really easy to kind of throw it up on the wall and be like, everybody should be doing 15, 20 minutes of yin and do all this stuff and to be very like forthright. Like, you know, Seamus is almost 20 months old and, and I've had like zero ability to do that stuff. And I've, and it's, and it, and sometimes it'll come down. It, yes, it is a choice at the end of the day, but I'm like, but I want to sleep. So how are we going to find that, afford that opportunity for our athletes and sometimes it means giving up some more pedaling time. And that's where you have to have the faith, the trust of like, hey, if you and I was speaking with the athlete yesterday, it's like, you tell me you have eight hours a week for your activity. Eight. But now we want to add in gym stretching. We're going to have to pull from the cycling. But adding in this element is actually going to make the cycling that you do complete be much more potent and um, increase in like vastly. Right. And so those conversations as athletes as a coach, and I know Brian, you say the same thing is pretty fun to, to help come to that conclusion, but the athlete really has to trust and kind of have that buy-in. Absolutely. And there's a gentleman that she quote, Christy Eschwan and the author quotes a gentleman named John Keeley, who is an Irish sports scientist and a performance coach. And he's worked with world-class athletes in numerous sports, including rugby and track and field. And he says this quote here, it says, mental relaxation is rarely prescribed with the same degree of precision that training is, but it should be. And I thought that was so powerful. I mean, I double highlighted that when I read it, because as we as we go through this with our athletes and, and over the years that we've had the business and had the opportunity to work with these so many people that have a lot on their plate and help them be successful, what it really boils down to is the training principles evolve as science evolves. And we we're, we stay up on all of that. But it's really all of the other things that we try to do as coaches to help people see that it's not just about doing the work. It's about having the courage to recover, 
and doing that recovery effectively, even if it's like you said, Joy, hey, I have eight hours a week. That means I have to maximize every minute of that time. No, maybe what you need to do is spend seven of it on your bicycle and then four 15-minute sessions of yin yoga a week. Anyway, with that said, I, I think that wraps up the book here, uh, at least for our vision of uh, this, these three chapters. We've got some other chapters to go, and we'll do another part three here. And with that, I've had to let Joy Joy uh, go off of our call here as Seamus is uh, being a restless bear. Uh, so I apologize for cutting everything off, but uh, we will close out with a little bit of gratuity. And I want, on behalf of Joy and I, I would like to thank everyone who came out to Camp Big Wheel. We had incredible partners that came. We had incredible campers. We had Backmate who was there. Expedo Pedals were there. Amp Human PR Lotion was there. Monster Hydro was there. Uh, GQ6 was there. Velofix San Diego was there. Snack Bar was there. VR7 Cycling Apparel was there. It was, uh, it was very, very cool, and I was humbled. And we had Chamois Butter there as well, too. So we had too many... Too many, well, I shouldn't say too many. We had a whole lot of wonderful people that made that happen behind the scenes. And I'm really, really thankful for everyone that came out. I know the campers had a great time. And for all of you that were kind of checking in on us through Strava or uh, through our social media channels, check it out. That was awesome. And uh, hope you guys will join us for the next one. So on behalf of Joy, uh, who is tending to young Seamus who might have a dirty diaper, just want to let everyone know, thank you guys for listening. And we're going to get some more podcasts out soon with some more great guests. Uh, got some inside line on some cool stuff to share with you guys. So, And, of course, we'll be doing uh, part three of the Good to Go book as well. So hope you enjoyed this episode. Hope uh, if you've got squeezy legs, you use them. And uh, if you don't, no stress. So until next time, be safe, ride hard, train smart, and have fun. <laughs>